Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. I wasn't here this summer, but that this weekend is nicer than the summer. Is that right? For those of you that were here this summer, it's like global climate change, really now. Come on. I can take it if it's this way. Uh, hey, let me also share with you, um, because, you know, we are a church, but we really are a core group. You guys are the core group of our church, and obviously we're getting ready to go into Huntington Beach. And, uh, you know, we could either, Lo and I could sort of be handling everything and just give you guys, you know, the easy news, the good news, keep you guys sort of just very comfortable, or we can bring you into the process that we're going through. And as you know, we're trying to get into Golden West College, and we have had lots of discussions. We've done lots of things. You guys aren't that interested in everything we've done. But it really is coming down to now a parking issue, believe it or not. And uh, the reality, as, as mundane as parking sounds like, in uh, Orange County, if people can't park, they won't come. We have learned that. And there are some parking issues at Golden West. And so this week... We have to figure this out, and it really is sort of a make-or-break deal. Either we'll figure out a parking solution that works for us and that we feel very good moving forward, or we will not go to Golden West. That's kind of where it is at this point. And again, I just really, really want to encourage you guys to pray about this. Uh, There's parts of it, uh, most of it's out of Lowe's and my control. It really has to do with Golden West and what they're willing to do and how this will maneuver. And uh, we just want to have great wisdom. The worst thing, here's, here's what I think the very worst thing could be, is that we go to Golden West and it doesn't work for us. That is worse, believe it or not, than staying here and sort of going, oh my gosh, when are we getting off the Irvine campus? Uh, we can only enter into Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley one time. And we want to do it really well so that when people come, they're excited and there isn't sort of this stumbling block. And so we're trying to be very wise with it. We feel the tension. Lo and I live with it like every day. I wake up almost every morning thinking about it is we've got to get off of Irvine. But again, I think the worst thing we could do is get off and not land in a right spot. So please, please pray about it. Um, Here's the great news You know, there's going to come a time where location and facility is going to be of no interest to us because it's behind us. It's just not behind us yet. So uh, let's do it together. We're a core team. Your prayers make a huge difference. They really do. People are asking me now, what can we do to help Huntington Beach? I just tell them, please, please pray. Uh, There's times where action is what's needed. Right now, prayer is needed. So please, just make it sort of a daily habit to pray for this. We will keep you updated, and we are hoping that we'll have good news for you next week that we can just say, this is the deal. This is what we're doing. All right? Is that fair? You all good? All right, let's pray right now, okay? Lord, we want to just pause and recognize that you are the sovereign king, God of the universe, and we are not. And you have called our church into existence. We did not call this church into existence. And you are the one that has asked us to go into Huntington Beach and Fountain Valley into that area so that we could minister to people that you want to reach, that we could impact children and students 
single adults and families and seniors in that area. And we know you have a heart for that area. And you've called us. And now, Lord, you see that we have this issue of needing a location and needing a spot. And it's so weird to us that it would come down to something like parking. But it has. It's come down to that. And so we pray, Lord, that if Golden West is where you want us to be, that you will just uh, eliminate that problem, that you will open the door wide and we'll know it. And Lord, if it's your plan to close that door because you've got a better thing, you know that in our hearts that will be a disappointment to us and we'll have to kind of rally. But Lord, we trust you and we will do what you call us to do. We pray you'd lead us to the right spot. This week, help us to be mindful to talk to you constantly about this. And we do trust you, God. We know that you have the exact right plan for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, enough of that. Now for important things. How many of you are watching the NFL playoffs? Okay. And how many of you could care less about the NFL playoffs? All right. Okay. And how many in this room are so wise and so godly that you're rooting for the Seattle Seahawks to win today? How many of you, thank you, how many of you have ever even heard of the Seattle Seahawks or some of you are Chicago fans? That's fine. We'll talk next week unless Seattle loses and then it's just, it's history. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I want to ask you this question. Think of, think back in your life of a message or a speech that had a huge impact in your life, okay? Somebody got up and they said some words, and you really look at that and you say, that was kind of a turning point in my life, or that was huge, that was just huge in my life. Maybe it was a message that you heard at Mariners at some point, and you just said, that really sort of changed the whole trajectory of my life. Uh, Maybe it was at another church. Maybe it wasn't religious, really. It was maybe like Martin Luther King, I have a dream. And you heard that, and you just said, my gosh, that just captures my heart. I see things differently now. Uh, Most of us can point back to something, some kind of speech, some kind of message that had a huge, huge impact on me. And here's what we're going to do. For the next four weeks, we are going to be looking at a message that believe it or not, even if you don't know it, has had a huge impact on your life because it's had a huge impact in the world. And you're part of the world, so it's impacted you. Uh, Out of this message come such common phrases as turn the other cheek, don't judge lest you be judged, treat others as you'd have them treat you. Uh, We have a, a sort of a famous prayer that most of us can say kind of from memory. Uh, Join me if you know this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, we'll stop there because you got the point. You know that. Is that amazing? We all know that same prayer. Uh, It has the greatest ethical teaching that's ever been given. Listen to the topics that are covered in this message. Uh, They're both profound and practical. It teaches about hate and love, lust and purity, retaliation and forgiveness, divorce and marriage, lying and honesty, hypocrisy and authenticity, greed and generosity, worry and peace, judging others or self-reflection. Let me just ask a question. Could any of you use help in any of those areas? None of you could use help in any of those. Okay, come on now, participate. Here we go. 
And it, has, it covers really important spiritual issues like prayer and faith and true and false discipleship, true path to God and false one, uh, what God wants you to build your life on. How many of you could use help on that? Okay, see, this is a very, very relevant message. And this message is called the Sermon on the Mount. All right, it is covered in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, Believe it or not, it's 111 verses, kind of short, less than 2,000 words in the original language. And if you just sat down to read it, it would take you about 15 minutes to read. And it contains all of this information. It contains all of this stuff. It has done more to shape, people say, and religious, non-religious people say, this has done more to shape Western civilization than any other message that's ever been given. In fact, it is one of the major differences between how people think in the East and how people think in the West. Uh, When Jesus originally delivered it, it was so earth-shattering that the crowd struggled to understand it. The religious authorities wanted to silence it, and the disciples were so inspired that they said they would live their lives by it. And the listeners responded that day by saying, this person speaks with an authority that has never been seen on earth before. And it's changed people for 2,000 years. Uh, It's an interesting thing to say. Uh, I I read years ago that uh, Bill Gates, when he was a little guy, he was traveling, his family, he lived in Washington State, and his family was traveling from Seattle to Spokane. And he was in the back of the car, And he decided to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. And apparently he did. He memorized the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that's something that he can do that we probably can't do so well. But, you know, it's really made me think, as I've been starting to look at this again, is what an amazing thing it would be to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm going to try. And I'm going to invite you to try. Okay, so just a little application there. Maybe just portions of it. Maybe read through it and just say, there's some portions of it that I want to memorize. But here's the deal. Here's the reason that it's so important. It's not just that it's ethical teaching. It's not just that it gives sort of good rights and wrongs. Jesus says that it is seminal for understanding what it means to follow him. And it's so succinct. It's so locked down. It's so, you know, to the point that literally every word that you know, every word that you memorize, has a tremendous impact in your life. It is so relevant to how we live today. So I'll just throw that out there. You know, give it a try. I'm going to give it a try. I've started on, I sort of got through the Beatitudes, although you'll see that when we put them up on the screen, I'm not going to trust my memory yet. But give it a try. See what kind of impact this message can have in your life. Put it into your memory. All right, so let's do this. We need to start in chapter 4 of Matthew, even though the Sermon on the Mount starts in 5. We need to get kind of a running start because you need to put it in context of why this message is so important. And uh, in chapter 4, last week, we talked about the temptations of Jesus. If you were here, you know that we talked about the temptations. And it's a very interesting story. If you weren't here, what's interesting about it is it's this showdown between Satan and Jesus, right, in the desert. Nobody else is around, and so there's a showdown. And you would think that Jesus, being the Son of God, being the, actually the creator of the universe, the Bible says, 
that this would not be a fair showdown at all, that Jesus would just take care of business right away. He could get Satan out of the way at the beginning of his ministry. He could do that. It sort of reminds me, remember the Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? At one point in the movie, Indiana Jones is being chased all over the place, and he comes into this clearing in this sort of market square, and this Arab guy who has all these robes and stuff on comes up with him, and he's got this sword, and he does this really fancy thing with the sword to do this showdown with uh, Indiana Jones. And remember what Indiana Jones does? He just pulls out his pistol and shoots him. And then he just runs on. And I sort of think, why doesn't Jesus just handle the showdown with Satan like that? I mean, Jesus could just have lasers come out of his eyes and vaporize Satan. I mean, the Bible says that there's no comparison in the strength between the two. Yet that's not the way that Jesus does it at all, right? Jesus comes, and he comes in a position where he is very vulnerable. He comes in a very meek position. Uh, he is very humble. He's very dependent on God. When Satan even tells him, you know, power up, let's see your power, Jesus refuses to do it. And he uses, he uses a tool or a weapon that is available to all of us. He doesn't use a supernatural strength to sort of do things. He just quotes scripture. He memorizes and quotes scripture. And that actually has a great impact. And it's an interesting way because this is really foreshadowing something that Jesus is going to teach in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get to that in just a second. But rather than doing it the way that we would probably do it if we had the powers of Jesus, he does it in a totally different way. Well, after that, we see that Jesus starts his ministry in Matthew 4.12. If you have your Bibles, you can just flip to Matthew 4, and we'll get over to Matthew 5. But in Matthew 4.12, he starts his ministry up in a region called Galilee. It's about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. Lots of people lived up there. It's where Jesus' hometown was from. He starts up there, and it says in Matthew 4.17, it says, From that time on, now as Jesus begins his ministry, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And repent means what? What does it mean to repent? It means to turn, turn around. And it also means sort of this idea of turn back to home, turn back to home. That was sort of the Hebrew meaning of it, turn back to home. And what Jesus is saying is now a kingdom is available and you can turn and become part of it. That's basically what he is saying here. Now, we need to spend some time talking about something that will probably feel maybe a little technical, maybe a little boring, but it is so essential if you're going to understand really anything that Jesus teaches. And that is, what is the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God? Those phrases are used interchangeably. What does it mean to call uh, this place the kingdom of heaven? And here's just the real simple definition, and then I'll flesh it out for you. It means the effective rule of God, okay? It means the effective rule of God. Now, you're like, what are you talking about? Because the first thing maybe you think about is, well, he's God. He rules over everything. What do you mean the effective rule of God? It is true that God is sovereign, and he rules over everything, yet... In his approach to this world, he is purposely held back. He purposely limits his effective rule. In other words, where everything carries out exactly as he wants for one reason, to give us freedom to participate. Because if he forces us to do everything that he wants, 
In God's mind, he says, well, then you're not doing it willingly. You're not doing it out of love. You're only doing it because I'm making you do it. And to God, it is such a high priority that we choose to follow him, that we choose to participate in his rule, that he says, I will limit it. And it's the reason that we have in this world things like disease and war and poverty and oppression and, you know, slavery and sex trafficking and, you know, all the things that we have. In fact, I was looking, just this morning I turned on my computer and I was looking at the front page of MSNBC and it showed this picture. Uh, let's see if we have it. Okay, can you see that picture? It's a dog sitting by a grave. This is down in Brazil. Brazil's had terrible flooding and mudslides. And so a whole bunch of people have died. And just the caption under this uh, basically said that this dog has been sitting by the grave of his master, a young woman, uh, who died. And he's been there for a couple of days, just sitting there. And I don't know, there was something so poignant about that. And I look at that and I just think, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's just not the way it's supposed to be. Our world is not the way it's supposed to be. And now you start to see that there is an effective rule where everything that God wants is coming true and moving in the right direction. And yet in our world, there are all kinds of places, all all parts of our uh, culture and our world where things are not the way they're supposed to be because God limits himself and says, I'm not going to force you. You will choose. And what God says is things like you know, floods and mudslides and hurricanes and all of the earthly catastrophes that we have actually come from a much more personal, deeper problem called sin. And sin is simply our rebellion from God. So it comes out in various ways. We're selfish and uh, we're sort of self-absorbed and we do things like lie or gossip or we hate people or we manipulate people Uh, We become very, you know, sort of proud and all of these things. And God says that all of that creates in this world a part of the world that is under God's rule, the kingdom of God, and a part of the world that is not. So the kingdom of God is where God effectively rules. And here's what's amazing is Jesus is basically saying, as he comes to earth, he says, the kingdom of God is now available. God's effective rule on this earth is now available, and the good news is everybody can apply. You don't have to be a certain religion. You don't have to be a certain morality. You don't have to be a certain ethnic group. You don't have to have a certain amount of money. Everybody can apply to be part of the kingdom of God. And people that are part of the kingdom of God basically say, I'm going to do what God wants me to do, and I'm going to try to put into this world the things that God wants. I'm going to try to extend his effective rule. That's basically what the kingdom of God is. All right, so is that clear, kingdom of God? Yeah, pretty much so. Because you're going to hear it all the time. And what Jesus teaches in the Bible will not make sense if you don't understand that that's what he's offering, this kingdom of God idea. He says it's come near because he has come to give it. And then we move very quickly because now the story picks up and moves quickly we get his first recruits. So Jesus has his first recruits into the kingdom. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. 
Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So let me ask you a question. What is the call? Because this is a call. What is the call of the kingdom of God? What does Jesus say to Peter and Andrew? What are the two words he says? He says, follow me. That's the call. The call is follow me, and you are going to become somebody that participates in bringing the kingdom of God to earth, right? We, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom of God is not a time in the future. It's not when we die and go to heaven. That's not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is God's effective rule right now. And here Jesus comes to Peter and to Andrew, and he says, listen, right now you can participate in the kingdom of God. You can join me. You can follow me. And you can be part of bringing God's kingdom here to earth. Now, let's just think back to what Peter and Andrew would have been all about as fishermen, as they were sort of doing their profession and dreaming of everything that being a fisherman in Galilee could be. Just think, what would be the dreams that they would have? They would probably have a dream that if they had one boat, they could get to the point of having two boats, maybe four boats. Maybe they would get a whole fleet of fishing boats. Maybe their dream was to become, sort of corner the market on all fishing in Galilee. Maybe it was to become great boat manufacturers and to really set up a whole industry of fishing. I mean, who knows what their dreams were, but they had certain dreams and certain things would come from fishing and they'd have nice houses and nice things and, you know, a nice chariot or whatever the things are. You know, they'd sort of think this would be great. This would be great. The point is that that would be a very ordinary dream for any fisherman in Galilee. All of them would have that dream. That's exactly what they would be thinking. What Jesus does is he comes and he says, instead of having ordinary dreams, why don't you have an extraordinary dream? Why don't you be the one that brings God's kingdom to Galilee? Why don't you be the one that participates? Instead of fishing for fish, why don't you fish for people and change the destinies of people? Extend the rule of God in this area. Why don't you do that? Instead of building your kingdom, why don't you build God's kingdom? That's really what Jesus is saying. So he's saying, follow me. And if you follow me, you're going to be a builder of the kingdom of God. Now let's talk for a second. Let's just peel out of that for a second and talk about our dreams or dreams of people in Orange County, dreams of people in Huntington Beach or Fountain Valley. When people around us dream, what do they dream to have, would you say? What are some of the things? Go ahead. A church in Huntington Beach. That's what we do because we're kingdom-minded. But what do other people dream of? All right, retirement? House, big house? You guys, come on. Children, money, cars, all those kinds of things. Because that's, you know, we look around and we say, you know, a, a house up on a hill that overlooks the ocean or a seaside lot or a really nice car, or sending my kids to the most prestigious colleges. Those are things, they aren't bad things, but they're ordinary things. It's what everybody in Orange County dreams of. Everybody thinks of that. And yet God comes to us and he says, listen, you're able to have an extraordinary dream. Not to just dream about building your kingdom, 
but to dream about building God's kingdom. I'm inviting you into that. That's the calling that you get to be part of. It's, it's really sort of an amazing opportunity. Jesus is saying, partner with me on a journey that will be so far superior to anything that you could dream of on your own. And he comes to Andrew and to Peter and James and John, we know, and they all say, we're in. We'll do it. We will go along with it. And then right before we get to Matthew 5, the last thing that we read is that Jesus goes throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So he connects the gospel, the good news, with the kingdom. And he starts healing every disease and sickness. uh, And news spreads all around him. So in Syria, which is north of Galilee, people start to come to him. And he's healing diseases and he's, uh, you know, he's... uh, He's helping people with severe pain and demon possession and seizures and all these kinds of things. And it says a very large crowd comes, and they come from Decapolis, which is sort of a Gentile region, which is interesting. So non-Jews are coming. Come from Jerusalem and Judea, that's south of them, and then in the region across the Jordan. Uh, So that's to the far east. And so you have this huge amount, these huge amount of people coming to see Jesus because he's starting, he's starting glimpses of the kingdom of God are starting to spill out of him. Okay, now it's in kind of a supernatural way here, but people are starting to see what the kingdom of God looks like. What does it look like when God's reign on earth starts to become reality? And they start seeing these amazing pictures of it, and it's very compelling. So now we are at Matthew 5. Okay, you guys, we're ready to go into the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 starts, and it starts with these words, Matthew 5, 1 and 2. It says this, read it with me. It says, Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, let me just share a couple things before we jump in to our first section of teaching. Uh, Jesus, where are the crowds? Why are there crowds around him? Because he's healing. There's all these huge amount of people. There's all these people around Jesus because they're watching what he's doing. Uh, It says that he goes up on a mountainside. Now, let me just point something out. This is interesting to a Bible teacher. You guys might yawn. But uh, Luke gives the Sermon on the Mount, too. And you know where Luke says it takes place? On a piece of flat ground. And so why is Matthew saying that it happens up on a mountain? Some of you are going to feel very uncomfortable with it because you're going to just say, oh, my gosh, the Bible contradicts itself. What is this? Well, one of the things that might help you a little bit is it was very common in hilly parts of of where mountains were, there would be plateaus. And so they actually literally could both be true. Matthew's talking about the mountain region that Jesus teaches up on a mountainside. And Luke is saying, well, it was on a piece of flat ground. Well, both of those could be true. But here's the thing that's interesting. Matthew is going to compare Jesus constantly. You'll see it through the whole book of Matthew. He'll compare him with a guy named Moses. And Moses got the Ten Commandments. And where did he get the Ten Commandments from? Mount Sinai, up on a mountain. And so some people would say, Matthew here is making a comparison between Moses, who gave the first law of how things worked, and he got it on a mountain, and Jesus now giving sort of the expression of the second law, a different kind of law, a superior law. And he does it on a mountain. And so again... In the Bible, there are no things that are just thrown in randomly. Matthew purposely is doing things to try and make a comparison. And you'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, one of the things that Jesus says is he says things like, you've heard it said, 
blankety blank blank, but I tell you, do you remember that thing? And you're going to see it in a little bit. You've heard it said. Well, he's comparing things with what Moses had taught from Mount Sinai and what now he's teaching. And so he's sort of filling things in or changing things up a little bit. All right, so it's up on a mountainside. Jesus sits down. It's the posture when a rabbi taught, he would sit down, and his disciples come to him. And this is super important for the Sermon on the Mount. You need to understand the teaching is primarily to his disciples. They are not to the crowds. The crowds have not made a decision about Jesus. They are not followers. They are not believers. They're not all in. They're just checking things out. His disciples have made the commitment. And so Sermon on the Mount is instruction for disciples. And if you consider yourself a disciple, somebody who's already made a decision, you're gonna, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is for, is to instruct you. But throughout it, Jesus knows that crowds are listening in. He's teaching his disciples, but there's crowds listening in. And he keeps that in mind, too, because his other goal in the Sermon on the Mount is to invite people to this amazing way of life. And so he's, he's compelling them. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've never made a decision for Jesus. And as we go through this, what Jesus is doing is he's trying to pull you in and saying, don't you want this kind of life? Isn't this the life you are destined to live? And so that's what's sort of going on here. And then he teaches them. And it's very interesting, again, You know, Bible geek gets excited about this. You guys are like, when is this over? But the word, the verb for teach is not that he got up and taught this one time. There is a verb tense, the aorist tense, where it's like he taught them once and just once on this. This is imperfect, which means he taught them this at this point, and he taught it again, and he taught it again, and he taught it again. In fact, most people believe that the Sermon on the Mount was either much longer than a 15-minute little, you know, message, or that he gave it many times over and that Matthew collects it all here, these teachings here. But the idea is Jesus taught these things over and over and over again. They were being taught constantly. They came out of his mouth all the time. All right, so now we are ready for the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to have you guys help me, and here's how we're going to do it. Um, You guys are going to be the first group, and you're going to read on all of the Beatitudes here. You're going to read the first part. So uh, it's going to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then you're going to read always the second part, which is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Do you guys get that? All right? Just a little fun here. See how fun we are. All right. You guys ready? And, And so we're going to have to be quick on getting this stuff up on the screen, okay? Otherwise, we'll get stuck unless you've memorized this. Okay, here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, wait a second. What happened here? Did we just totally... Yes, I appreciate it. You were ready. All right, are we ready? Here we go. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, and let's all read this together. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so here's what we have. We have eight Beatitudes. Beatitude, it was an Old, Old Testament literary device. You know it's a beatitude if the sentence starts with blessed. Okay, so there's a lot of them in the book of Psalms. There's some in Proverbs, some in the prophets. Blessed are you. And so that it's just sort of a technique of explaining what it means to be blessed. Most of the Sermon on the Mount is ethical teaching about how you should behave, but the Beatitudes are character qualities, okay? And so Jesus is going to start off by just stating, here is the character of somebody who lives in the kingdom of God. All right, so he's already done the calling of people. The calling is to participate with him in bringing the kingdom of God. Now he's going to spend time saying, let me tell you about the character of those who participate in the kingdom of God, certain character qualities. It basically is this. The kingdom produces these kind of character traits in people, so you receive them from the kingdom, but... They're also something that you develop, and so you're to pursue them. It's sort of a both and, okay? So God gives them to you. There's a part of this where you'll see these attributes growing in you, and there's a part where you need to say, I want to become more like that. I'm going to to put effort into being more this kind of person. You sort of have a both and that takes place here. And I was just thinking of sort of an illustration, you know, just of how character works. Um, Again, sorry, big in the NFL playoffs, so I've been reading them, so another illustration from that. But today, later today, the Jets are playing. Do any of you know the coach of the Jets? Oh, you really aren't much of fans. Rex Ryan, you guys sort of Rex Ryan. He is he's a kind of a loudmouth kind of a guy. And uh, uh, ESPN did the special on him. He's very foul-mouthed. You know, you, you don't see it on interviews because he'd get bleeped out. But uh, if, you, if you watch him in real life, apparently very foul-mouthed. And that's just one of his character traits is he just talks like that. And uh, there was a guy, Tony Dungy. You guys have probably heard of him. He was a coach. He's a little soft-spoken, really a great guy. And at one point, Tony Dungy said, I would never have had Rex Ryan on my staff, on my coaching staff. And people felt like he was being very judgmental on Rex Ryan. And he said, no, I'm not being judgmental at all. I'm just saying the culture of our football team, the Indianapolis Colts when he was there, the culture is we did not have the coaches swearing at players. I just didn't want that as part of our culture. We just wanted to create an atmosphere where we didn't talk that way. And so he basically said, Rex Ryan would not have fit in with our team. It's not to say that he's not a good coach. It's not to say that he wouldn't fit in with another team. He just wouldn't fit in with our team. And that's basically what Jesus does with these character qualities. What he's going to say is there's all kinds of character qualities that people have. Let me just tell you the character qualities of the people who play on my team. This is how they look. All right? So he's going to say that people that have these character qualities that we just read through and we're going to look at, are blessed. Let's talk about blessing one time, too, just to make sure that we're clear on what blessing is. Let me ask you this question. Conventional wisdom. Somebody says, God has really blessed me. All right? So I'm just going to, let's say not in church. Let's say you see him, and you're, you're on the beach, and you're talking with somebody, and somebody says, you know, God's really blessed me. 
What would come across your mind? What would you think that person means in that setting? God's blessed me. What do you think? What? Material wealth. Okay, so maybe they have money. I've heard people use that. God's really blessed me. We've got all kinds of money. Or, what's that? Okay, they've lived a life worthy. Maybe, have you ever heard somebody say, God's really blessed me. We have a great family. Or, God's really blessed me. I'm healthy. Uh, Those are terms. We look at certain things that are good in life, and there's nothing wrong with it, but people say, God's blessed me. God's blessed me. So look, I've got money, and I have a nice car, and I have a house on the hill, and I have good health, and I have a good family, and I'm reasonably happy, and I'm a popular person, or, you know, my, my career is going really well, and people say, God has blessed me. Now, that's not a bad thing to say. And in fact, the Bible says that all good gifts come from God. But I just want you to think about that and then reflect on the list we just read. Are those lists similar? They aren't similar at all. In fact, you look at the list that Jesus gives and you might say, man, I'm not sure I want to be blessed in that way. Those don't look appealing at all. Those look awful. I don't want to be poor in spirit or to mourn or to be persecuted. I mean, those don't look like statements of blessing. So what is Jesus doing here? Why is he saying these kinds of things? Uh, Years ago, I saw a Twilight Zone, and uh, Twilight Zone, you know, were super low-budget TV shows. And so, uh, but it was a story of this guy, and he died, and he woke up, and he was in this place, in this room, and uh, somebody came in and said to him, you know, some divine character, of course, he was just dressed in a normal suit, some divine character comes in and says, you know, you've gone to your life after, and, uh, and so I just want to welcome you, and then he leaves, and all of a sudden, all these things happen. He opens up uh, this dresser drawer, and there's all this money there. And then he opens up the closet doors, and there's all these great clothes in there, and they all fit him perfectly. And then uh, all, all of a sudden, a, a bunch of guys come in that are all his friends, people that he just loved being with, and they did all kinds of things together. And then, uh, you know, just to show how old this was, all these women come in, these very attractive women, and he calls them dames. So, you know, that's where this is coming from. And so, you know, all these things are happening. And and so he just looks and he goes, I would have never guessed that I would have made it here to heaven. This is just an amazing thing. And so all this stuff is taking place. And the guy who originally was sort of hosting him comes in and he says, I just never would have guessed that you know, that after living and chasing all these things and thinking that, I, you know, that I'd sort of missed the mark and worrying about where I'd end up, finding out that I'm here in heaven. And the last line of the show, of course, was, who said this was heaven? And the point that was sort of being made in a twilight zone was the things you think are so appealing and the things that you think you want so much, are you sure... That's really what you want. Because what Jesus is going to say, and this is very crucial for understanding the Sermon on the Mount and really any of his teachings, is blessing is getting the best that God has to offer. If you want a definition, blessing is getting the best God has to offer. And what Jesus is saying here is the best God has to offer is his presence, is his provision, is his protection, and his mission. Those are the best things. And in light of that, he's now going to give some character qualities that help you 
grab onto God, the best that God has. So you ask the question, is money a gift from God? Is money a blessing from God? And the answer is, it can be, and it might not be. Money can be a blessing from God. It can bring you more into God's presence. Certainly it can. It can be part of God's provision for you. It can be a way that God protects you. It can be helpful to you as you pursue God's mission. But money can also be a horrible thing. And in fact, the Bible would say in more cases than not, it's a horrible thing. It doesn't bring you into God's presence. It makes you totally self-reliant. It doesn't give you the protection that God wants. It doesn't give you the provision. You end up spending way more than the provision. It doesn't put you on mission. It actually puts you on a mission to build your own kingdom, not his kingdom at all. And so here's the deal. Money can go either way. Jesus is saying it's a blessing when it brings you into God's presence, when it brings you into his provision, when it protects you in the way that God wants you to be protected and it drives you to his mission, then it's a blessing. And so here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to give a list of character qualities, and here's what I want to do. I want to just go through really quickly these character qualities, and I want you to ask yourself this question. Is that me? Is that me? Is that a character quality that I think is being developed and that I'm moving in, or is that one that I'm really struggling with? Okay, because this is helpful. This is real practical. So the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who recognize that they're spiritually dependent, totally dependent on God. In fact, maybe even to say spiritually bankrupt. I don't bring anything. It's all God. It's not me. It's only by God's grace that I'm saved. When you look at it, do you see yourself that way? Or is there sort of this pride of, well, I'm better than most. Well, I'm pretty darn religious. Well, God's kind of lucky to have me. The first thing Jesus is going to say is the people who are blessed, the people that live in God's presence, that has all these things, are people who are poor in spirit. And Jesus goes on later on to tell a story about two men that go up to the temple, and one is a religious leader who's very proud of his religion, and one's a tax collector who is totally spiritually bankrupt. And remember how the parable ends. Jesus says, only one guy went away justified before God. It was the tax collector. Well, are you the tax collector? Are you the person that says, if not for the grace of God, I have no hope? Second one, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this is basically the idea, those who are broken over their own sin and those who are broken about the world's condition. Do you look at the picture of the dog by the grave and you just, you know, you think, I wonder wonder what breed that dog is? Or is there something in your heart where you say, Oh my gosh, that is the saddest thing. That is so sad. Are you sensitive to the the trauma in our world? Are you sensitive to being broken personally and realizing, you know, when I blow it, when I sin, it's really a bad thing. Jesus highlights later on in his ministry, do you remember the story? He's at dinner and this woman comes in and she's crying. And so she eventually gets down at his feet and puts some perfume on his feet and she's crying on his feet and she's wiping his feet with her hair. Remember that? And the, the, the people that are hosting the dinner say, oh my gosh, this is crazy. What's going on here? And Jesus says, don't you understand what she's doing is so beautiful. And she's somebody that mourns. Is that you? Do you mourn over those things? Next, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Meek is basically somebody that's humble. It's somebody that shares credit. It's somebody that serves others. One of the worst things about being meek, about being a servant, is that people actually treat you like a servant. And, you know, it's one thing to be a servant and have people say, you're such a great person. You're so great. I love being around you. You're such a humble person. I love that. I can take pride in that. It's another thing when somebody says, oh, yeah, he's just a servant. Oh, yeah, whatever. You can do anything with that guy. You know, and that's, Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are humble. Uh, Jesus tells a story about people maneuvering for a place at a banquet table, and people are trying to get to the head of the table because that's where the action happens. And Jesus says, you're an idiot. Go to the bottom of the table. Go the furthest away. And somebody will come in and they'll look and they'll say, you shouldn't be down at this end of the table. Let me bring you up to this, and you'll be able to walk up in front of everybody. And everybody goes, whoa, this is kind of an important person. And those people, you know, and he'll say, hey, what are you doing at the head of the table? You need to get up. Go back down to the... And Jesus is making this point is, why don't you intentionally be meek, be humble? Go to the back of the table. And Jesus has one of his favorite sayings, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then the next one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Well, we fill ourselves with all kinds of things. Do we fill ourselves with this desire to be a good person? That's what it means to be righteous to follow God, to do the things that God wants? Do we hunger and thirst after that? Jesus will later say in the Sermon on the Mount, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You will be filled. Number five, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And again, this idea of seeing people that are hurting and doing something practically about that. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan just to emphasize how important it is. Julie works, my wife, works in the Resource Center. And uh, the other night, we were doing some things, and we were trying to put some stuff in this car. We have this large Suburban, and it was filled with stuff. And I was so frustrated because it was so full. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And Julie says, I'm sorry I'm taking all this stuff to some people that just need it. And I'm like, I don't care, you know. This is our car. Why isn't why is this filled with all this stuff? And so, you know, sort of the sad thing is I would not do well on blessed are the merciful because it was like it was an inconvenience to me. My wife would do well on that because she shows mercy. She takes the stuff to people that need it. How are you on that? Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And this is these are people that have integrity and that are intentional about guarding themselves from not, you know, sort of saturating themselves with all kinds of crummy stuff. And God says, when you do that, uh, you will see God. How do you do on that? Are you careless? Do you say, it doesn't make any difference. I can handle it. Or do you say, no, I need to be kind of pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And peacemakers are the people that forgive and give grace and don't retaliate when things happen. And uh, there's a story that Jesus tells about an unmerciful servant. He goes to a king, and a king forgives him a huge debt, And then he turns around and he tries to wrangle a few bucks out of somebody that owes him some money. And Jesus makes this point. He goes, don't you understand if you are going to live uh, basically with, uh, with this kind of forgiveness, if you expect to get it, you better give it. How do you do with forgiveness? Do you retaliate? Do you forgive? 
And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus gives the example of John the Baptist in prison, calling him the greatest of all men, greatest of any man who's been born, John the Baptist. And part of it is because he stood even in persecution. How do you do on that? Do you compromise so that people don't really see you that strongly in a way? Or do you say, no, I'm willing to take the persecution to stand for Jesus in certain circumstances? So question, how do you do on that? How do you do on that list? Because as Jesus teaches, he's going to say, listen, I want you to receive this from me. I want you to receive these character qualities as I build into your life. And I want you to pursue them. I want you to move in that direction. And you're the one that gets to decide, am I going to saturate my mind with these character qualities of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. This week, I would love to have you, whether you want to memorize the Beatitudes or just reflect on them, is to go through them, maybe every day, just read through them and say, God, how am I doing? How am I doing in this? How can you more make this part of my life? Let's pray, and then we want to close with a little bit of worship as we respond to what God is doing in our life. Lord, we look at this list, I look at this list, and I'm horribly convicted. I recognize how far I fall short. In fact, how little I even think of these character qualities. How my tendency is to move away from them. And yet you tell me that I'd be blessed if I did them. You tell all of us that we would be blessed if we pursued them. I pray this week that we would pursue these, Lord, that we would receive them from you, that we meditate, ask you to change our hearts so that our character becomes more like this because we want to participate in your kingdom. We want to be part of your kingdom. And we thank you, Jesus, that you brought it to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.